Well, I got to tell you, I love this passage and I'm happy that we're in it. If you grew up with this, if you've heard the story a lot of times, you kind of know what's going to happen next. It's lost its surprise. You, if that's you, you've got to slow down and we've got to read the Bible a little more carefully. It's chock full of ambush after ambush of this God and his grace showing up in in surprising places. The first thing, Abby didn't even get, I think, four words in when you see the first time that something unexpected happens that if you're paying attention, you shouldn't have expected to happen. And that's at the end of this prayer that we spent the past two weeks talking about it. Jonah has blown it. He's made a mess of his job as a prophet of his life. He's invested tremendous energy running from God, and it almost brought him to the end of himself. And God sends a storm. He pursues Jonah. For every step Jonah took running away, God took two steps running after Jonah. He has him cornered. He's in the belly of the creature. He is there three days and three nights. It's silent. It's dark. And he prays this prayer of repentance that we talked about the past couple of weeks. If you're a director, put on your director hat or cinematographer hat. It is a perfect moment to roll the credits there. It's already dark. You know, it'd be great contrast with the white credits rolling on the dark screen. Like Jonah has finally woken up. He finally sees who God is. He's brought to the end of himself. He says, uncle, he gives up. He stops running. He sees that God is good. God is vindicated. He, he's always been good, always been gracious. And finally, he gets his day in court where he is vindicated and seen as he is. And all seems right. They're reconciled. It would make all the sense in the world for the story to stop. But the story keeps going. The Lord commands the creature, the fish, to vomit Jonah up on the shore. It's the first time in days, probably, that Jonah has stood on solid ground that's not doing this. It's the first time he's had ground underneath his feet. And he feels that mercy underneath him. That my life is not in peril anymore. And then there's the second thing. And this was one sentence in. Did you catch this surprise? It seems like just kind of a a narrative introduction to what we're about to shift into. But this is what it says. Chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord, after Jonah was back on the beach, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah, rise up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it uh, that or call out the message that I give you. And this is amazing for a lot of reasons. A, God is still talking to Jonah at this point. That's amazing. You wouldn't necessarily expect that, right? Maybe some cold shoulder experience, a little distance, a little time for Jonah to really think about it. But God initiates talking to Jonah again. The second thing, the trip to Nineveh is still on. You would have thought, I mean, spring break trips have been canceled for a lot less than this. You would have thought the trip would be off. What the reader would expect if the reader's paying attention is that Jonah will have a press conference. He'll resign in disgrace the way every other politician or prophet or pastor who's been caught in scandal does. Right. You know, dutifully saying I own responsibility for what I did. I never thought it would come to this. 
And it's time I stepped down from my role as a prophet of the living God of Israel and the whole world. That's what you should have expected if we're paying attention. But what actually happens is God sends Jonah. The second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. If you had to go and title chapter three, a good title for chapter three is second chances. It's really what Jonah gets. Second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The mission is still on. He's still the guy. He's still the, the name on the marquee with all the flashing lights around it, starring Jonah. And God is still going with him. So he gets the second chance. The Ninevites, the whole point of Jonah going to Nineveh is to confront them with their running from the true and living God. To introduce them to this God, to, to confront them with their running and to call them home with this God, too. That's the second chances. We've all we're all old enough where we've been the recipients of second chances. I don't know where they came from from you. It could have been a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You did something really stupid. You dropped the ball. You made a huge mistake and they stuck in it with you. They gave you another chance. I know you've experienced it academically. The class bombed the test. You all come in on your knees and you're begging the professor. Can we write a little paper or retake the test or let another test count for this one for a second chance? Parents, maybe in high school, you broke curfew one too many times. There's a boss. You were late one too many times. And they said, last chance. And you got the second chance. So we all know how that feels. And it's, it's a feeling of relief. Uh, it's a feeling where like kind of the dread has passed. Uh, but it's also, it's a complicated feeling when we get the second chance. There's a um, series of ads that came out last October in Florida. And the people that put the ad on uh, was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And uh, this series of ads was multiple of these little three or four minute video shorts of profiles of ex-convicts. These are people who are felons, various crimes they'd committed in the past. And the video that I saw was called Suzanne's Story. And it's underneath this huge heading called the power of a second chance. This is how Suzanne started her story. In 1992, I was convicted of grand theft. I embezzled money from a company I worked for, and I was sentenced to 30 years in prison. In prison, I learned that I was in no way, shape, or form the person that I thought I was. I thought I was a good person who just simply made a mistake. In reality, I was a greedy person who needed to change who I was. I broke the law in 1992 and I was 100% wrong. But did the court order me to be punished for the rest of my life and not have a say in my future? Or do we believe in second chances? If you paid attention to the election, uh, Florida had a ballot initiative to restore voting rights to convicted felons. In a lot of states, they can't vote. The people of Florida who, were, who saw this ad campaign, who voted, decisively said, yes, we believe in second chances, and they passed that initiative. There's almost a sense in which we as a culture expect a second chance and maybe even demand a second chance, like you really get annoyed at the professors who don't give the second chance. But I said earlier, it's a complicated thing, these second chances. The way that we think about them and talk about them comes with a lot of toxic baggage, 
that we have to like cut loose and let it float away before we go any further into this passage. It will infect how we think God deals with us post blowing it. So as a culture, as a people, we think about second chances like this. Give me a second chance so I can redeem myself, so I can prove myself, so I can show you that I learned my lesson that this time I'm serious about it, right? That's how we all think about it. The problem is, is that the second chance comes with more pressure, more scrutiny than the first chance, right? (laughs) The first chance, no eyes are on you. The first chance, you're just kind of going about your business. But the second chance, when someone says last chance or second chance, they're watching you like a hawk. They're dialed in. And it feels like all eyes are on you to redeem yourself, to prove yourself, to not mess it up this time, to make it count. Uh, We've talked about the Virginia governor before. I won't go into detail. There's a constant stream of news coming out of him, but he's had a rough month. And every time he's kind of gone on TV for an interview or a press conference, it gets worse and worse. So after the blackface controversy, after uh, his comments on abortion and other things, he had another interview uh, where he kind of stuck his feet in his mouth again. He's refusing to resign, but here's what he said of why he won't resign. Almost verbatim. He said, I've got to have a chance to redeem my name. And now I'm going to go around the state on a racial reconciliation tour to prove that I've learned my lesson. We can giggle at Ralph Northam in Virginia, but his heart is like our heart. We want that chance to put the genie back in the bottle and to paper over what we've done. And oftentimes that's what we think a second chance is. If you grew up in the Bible Belt, I grew up in the Bible Belt. If you grew up here too, the, the likelihood of you thinking about second chances the way the governor of Virginia does are very high. You might even think of Christianity as God's gift to you of a second chance. Don't blow it. Make this count. Prove to me that you got the lesson that you're not supposed to run from me. Show the world that you learned Don't mess up this opportunity. All eyes are on you. And you think of God that way. You think of the gospel that that when you read the Bible, that's what you see there because of where we grew up and because of this warped understanding of these second chances. Well, let's set a couple of things straight before we look any further into the passage. First is this. God doesn't take chances, right? He is sovereign, which means he's in control of every single detail at an atomistic, microscopic level of all of reality. It's impossible for him to take chances. He's not on a roller coaster. He's not on the edge of his chair wondering what you're going to do or I'm going to do or what's going to happen tomorrow the way we are. So he doesn't give second chances in the sense of let's see how you'll do with this new opportunity. He's not like that. He's sovereign and he's holy and he's God. And here's a spoiler alert for next week. When you get into the beginning of chapter four, Jonah's not just going to be okay with a second chance. He's going to need a third and a fourth and a fifth. And we only have a few days of Jonah's life recorded. Imagine the rest of it, if that's a few days. His life is one long series of second and third and fourth and 500th chances or opportunities. 
So God doesn't give second chances in that way that we are prone to think about it. But here's what he does do. He does transform people. He does turn runners into sons and daughters. He does hide you in Jesus. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and gave himself for me. That's what God does. Is he makes you a new person. And so you don't really think about the rest of your life as a series of next chances. What you think about the rest of your life, what Jonah looked at his restoration is just that, a restoration. Proof that God is still with me after I blew it. Proof that he's loyal, proof that he's in this with me, proof that he's for me, proof that he's good, proof that he's patient. And it takes a whole world of pressure off when you stop wondering how many times will I blow it before I get this? Or how many times is one too many time for God to still love me, for me to still be in his good graces, for me to be a son, for me to be a daughter, for him to love me? When will I out his grace? See the importance of this? If you think about God as a giver of second chances, that is not what the Bible teaches. That's bad news, even though it might sound like good news. God transforming you and putting you in Jesus forever and removing all of your past, all of your future, all of your present indiscretions, bad decisions, missed opportunities, botched choices. That's good news. It truly means that you're free to go live your life with him. Success or failure, because your righteousness is not about your what you do with your opportunities now. Your righteousness is what Jesus did with his opportunities. It's how he used his potential. And that's the gospel. And now we're ready to talk about the second time the Lord came to Jonah to go to Nineveh. God is fully aware of Jonah's inability to sustain himself. He's fully aware of the Ninevites' weakness and foolishness and spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. He's aware of those dynamics. It's not news or information to him. He knows it. And so he's not wondering, how's it going to go when my prophet goes and attempts to elicit change and repentance and coming back home to God amongst the Ninevites? God knows what will happen. So he's not waiting to see what will happen, but he's patiently leading Jonah to understand what will happen. Here's an interesting thing. It takes a map to know this. So I pulled out Google Maps today. Wherever Jonah was when this creature spat him up on the beach was somewhere on the Israeli shore because that's where Joppa is that he left when the storm came later that night. To get from one of those places, Tel Aviv or Joppa or Haifa or one of those Israeli coastal cities to modern-day Mosul, Iraq, or where Nineveh used to be, is a 16-and-a-half-hour car ride. Jonah didn't have a car, so I looked it up. It's a 230-hour walk. So if Jonah was walking from dawn until dusk every single day, we're talking about at least a couple of weeks if he was walking that far every day to get to Nineveh. It's a 700-mile walk. That is a long, long time alone to rehearse in your mind what the heck just happened. 
grapple with this. Come on with me. Grapple. Remember what had just happened in this man's life. Grace used to be a word he talked about at small group Bible studies. And now grace had swallowed him whole and spit him out a changed man forever. God was a, was a religious word that he thought about. God was a containable creature. He just kind of sat over there. And now he's realized this is a God who's on the move. This is a God who, when you flinch away from him, he flinches towards you. Jonah finally knew what was inside of his heart, the wickedness, the sin, the selfishness, the narcissism. He didn't give a rip what happened to the Ninevites, an entire city of people, because he just wasn't interested in going and talking to them. That's where this man was, and Nineveh was where he was going, and he had a 700-mile walk over the course of a couple of weeks to think about all of this. That's from here to Oklahoma City to think about what grace just did in flipping your world upside down and right side up again. Talk about preparation to open your mouth to go and talk to the Ninevites about their sin. When you've had that much time and that much distance to think about the impact of your sin. And to talk to the Ninevites about a God who is merciful in the face of rebellion Because you've just lived that story in the most dramatic way I've ever seen in the Bible. Jonah is being prepared because Jonah has realized this indispensable thing. Frederick Buechner, I quote him a lot. You've probably heard this, but he says, uh, if you can pull it up here, he says the gospel. This is what Jonah realized. The gospel is bad news before good news. It's the news that man is a sinner, to use that old word. That he is evil in the imagination of his heart. That when he looks in the mirror all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, and slob. Finally, don't know how old Jonah was, but finally he got that. When he looked in the mirror, he was finally being honest with what he saw. There wasn't any more pretending. There wasn't any more hiding. This is a guy who had spiraled down into a hell of his own making. He himself called it hell. In his prayer. And finally, he softened enough to go talk to the Ninevites about their hardness of heart. And that's what I meant earlier when I said one of the things you'll see in this passage is that God uses softened people to say hard things to hardened people. He uses softened people, people who have been broken, people who have realized what Frederick Buechner realized of who I am not and who God is softened, tender people are gentle with hard people. And they're able to say hard things because they know, but for the grace of God, I am an Ninevite. But for the grace of God, I am just like them. And God knew that Jonah needed this softening, this tenderizing, this epiphany of what was really true about Jonah and what was really true about God. If he was ever going to go and say these words, if he was going to speak life to other people, Jonah had to die to the self-righteousness, to the moralism, to the superiority, to the thinking he had a leg up on other people. You know this because you only talk to people who have been softened. You only share your secrets with people who have been softened, right? 
When you think about your life as 52 cards, the, the ugly, scary cards where your heart's beating out of your chest before you tell someone, you tell people that you know have been softened by God's grace. People who are aware of how hard their heart was and still gets apart from God chasing them relentlessly. Those are safe people. Those are people who are tender and gracious and patient and understanding and empathetic and sympathetic and approachable and accessible. Because they've lived your story, the story you're about to tell them, the story you're terrified to tell them, they just got finished living it. That's what it means that God uses softened people to say hard things to hardened people. There's this new phrase that's been going around the past five or ten years, speak your truth. It's a dangerous thing because what if Jonah had just gone to Nineveh and spoken his truth and not what God said, Jonah, speak whatever message I command to you. He made Jonah sign on that dotted line before the trip even began. You speak to the Ninevites, whatever message, whatever truth I command you to speak. What if Jonah had just gone and kind of, there's a lot of things we know from his past and what will happen in chapter four, Jonah would have left out. He would have edited out. Probably God's mercies. He still struggled that are the Ninevites really deserving of this? He would have edited out some of his story, his own weakness, his own foolishness, his own hardness. I think that would have gotten polished up. But God says, you tell them exactly what I tell you to tell them. The truth, not your truth, not your version. If he was like you and my, you and he, you and I, he would have edited out the sharp, the sharp edged realities that God said, you've got to talk to the Ninevites about, which was their sin, which was their violence. This was a, this was kind of the, the national sin or the, 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 the thing that the Ninevites were renowned for around the ancient world was their violence. They were brutal. We talked about this a month ago. They were ISIS. They were merciless in warfare, merciless in how they treated people that they'd conquered. So when God calls Jonah to go, we know from chapter one and that the, their wickedness, their violence has risen up before God's eyes. When he calls Jonah to go to them and talk about that, he's talking about their pet sin. Hang with me here. This is the same as a preacher going to lower Manhattan to a big old convention of Wall Street investment bankers or brokers and saying, repent of your greed. It is crushing these people. Or going to D.C. and saying, turn from your wickedness. The way that you're using power is killing people. It's a, it's a preacher going to San Francisco and calling a city to repent of homosexuality. In those examples, you hear this and you're like, oh gosh, this is getting real. I can't even imagine that. And God tells Jonah, this is an indispensable part of the message. Why? The gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the news that we need God's mercy. People in New York and in D.C. and in San Francisco and in the Bible Belt or in the South, if you call this to repentance of racial tension, we don't want to hear those messages. We would love to hear a specially edited version of the truth that leaves our self-righteousness intact so that nothing is required of me. And God says, you must bring this up. 
Friends, if God is near to you, you're hearing what I'm saying right now is good news, not off-putting news. God tells you the truth. He doesn't spin the truth. He doesn't manipulate it. He's not a people pleaser. He's not a flatterer. He's not addicted to your opinion of him. He loves you so much that he will tell you the truth even when it is hard. But he loves you enough that he'll speak it to you through softened people. Through softened people. I don't have time to go through all of the Bible, but if you look at who God's messengers have been, they've been people who are walking, living billboards of sovereign mercy. People who all have a story and a testimony of, but for the grace of God, there go I. God softened Moses with 40 years under penalty of being a murderer in an isolated, nondescript town before he called Moses to speak to hardened Israelites. He softened Paul, this hard-hearted, hateful, murderous man. He softened him before he sent him to harden Gentiles. He softened Peter before Peter went to gather the Jews. He softened Jonah before Jonah went to Nineveh. Why? Not simply so that you'll be approachable and patient and gracious. Yes, that. God cares about that. He cares about you being gracious and truthful and patient with your friends. But also this, who is dragged into the spotlight with these sinners who've been softened and now go and say hard things to hardened people, but in gracious ways? God is in the spotlight. His power is celebrated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure. He's talking about the gospel that he's preaching. We have this treasure in jars of clay, brittle, little, ordinary, silly jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. For you to be a billboard of grace to a, to a world that needs that. You have to be weak. You have to be broken. You have to talk about your story too. Your story of running. Your story of God chasing you. Your story of softening. Your friends need people like this and you need friends like this. Sinclair Ferguson says, God longs to use human instruments. And to do so, these instruments have to be handmade, custom-built for his glorious purpose. The jewels of spiritual service are always quarried in spiritual experience. He says in that, that what we've been saying, if you are in Jesus, if your life is hidden in him, you're a custom-made tool that God intends to use to draw your friends home to him. But in order to use you, he's making you a custom-fitted tool. If you've ever customized something, an aftermarket adaptation, it requires cutting and pressing, and sometimes heating and reforming. If you are that object that's being customized, it feels like it hurts. It feels like I don't look the way I think I should look. This isn't going to work. But that's what God is doing in all of these people. Where we end in this passage for this week, before we revisit it in chapter four next week, is this. God specializes in the impossible. That is his specialty. 
you could really say in one sense that the gospel is God regularly doing the impossible. Jesus, those are his words, not mine. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, with man, with woman, all things are impossible. He says nothing is possible. But with God, all things are possible. Nicodemus argues with him and he says, what are you talking about? And he says, look, this salvation, this grace does not depend on man's effort, but on the grace of God. God regularly does impossible things. And that is good news. It's Jonah's life. You talk about Jonah being a billboard for something. He's a billboard for God regularly doing the impossible. The unexpected. The unanticipated. That God would chase someone who runs from him. That Jonah would live to see another day. That a fish would save him. That Jonah's hard-hearted impenitence would be transformed into soft-hearted. Looking at God and his mercy. Those are impossibilities. And it was one after another in rapid fire succession. Same is true with the Ninevites. Same is true with them. Who would have thought that the God of Israel, this God, would have anything to do with these people? Who would have thought his name would ever even be spoken in their land? That he would care to send a prophet to say, you've been worshiping air, but I am your maker. And I am your God. And I not only see your wickedness, but I see your need for my mercy. Who would have thought? Who would have thought they would have repented? That's unbelievable. Nobody in that day would have expected this. That they would have listened to Jonah. Jonah didn't expect it in this kind of way. But it happened. He does the impossible regularly. I want to end with a series of questions for y'all. Who is impossible for you? Who is an impossible object of God's mercy? For some of you, it's yourself. You think it's impossible that God would love me. It's impossible that he pursues me. I hear all this stuff that Ben's been talking about. It just makes me feel more and more lonely because I can't believe it for myself. And you're the person that it's impossible for God to chase and to move down. Your repentance is impossible for him to work. Well, here's a list of other people you might be, you might think would be impossible to change. George Wallace, that might not be a name you know, but it's a name I grew up hearing. I was still close enough, not that I was born in his era, but my parents were. So I heard it from them. George Wallace was the old governor of Alabama. He's the guy who stood in the doorway blocking uh, little black girls and black boys from getting into school saying segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was the epitome of racism in the South. He was the picture of hatred. The Baltimore Sun in 1955, years and years after his long reign of terror in the South, wrote this article. In the annals of religious and political conversions, few shiftings were as unlikely as George Wallace's. In Montgomery, Alabama last week, 1955, the once irrepressible governor, now 75, infirm, racked with pain and in a wheelchair since his shooting, held hands with black Southerners and sang, we shall overcome. What Wallace overcame is his past hatred that made him both the symbol and the enforcer of anti-black racism. And on March 10th, uh, Wallace went to St. Jude's Church to be with some 200 others 
marking the anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery Civil Rights March. It was a reaching out moment of reconciliation of his asking for forgiveness. Wallace, on his hands and his knees, begged for forgiveness from his African-American brothers and sisters that he had terrorized for years and years when he had power. This man, wheelchair-bound because of an assassin's bullet, racked with pain, ended up running for governor years later, had 92% of the African-American vote in Alabama. You think repentance is impossible for you? How about hard-boiled atheists? Any hope for them? C.S. Lewis, perhaps the greatest writer in Christendom in the past hundred years, referred to himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. I heard a story last year of a man who sits over there on Sunday mornings at this church who's been here for 20 years, Sunday after Sunday, and was converted a year ago. This hard-hearted, pew-sitting Southern Christian who said all the right stuff, believed all the right things, did all the right things, but doesn't know Jesus. Until last year, God showed up and opened his eyes. You think your repentance isn't possible? You think you can't change? You think God can't love you? Got this story from Trevor. He's been talking about her recently and I'm going to have one of her books in a book table in the back pretty soon. But Jackie Hill Perry, she is about 30 now. She's been around kind of in the, in the scene, writing books, speaking for about, I don't know, eight or 10 years now. Hip hop artist. She was in a committed relationship as a lesbian She wrote this in a book later about the night that Jesus showed up in her bedroom. She said, I loved my girlfriend too much not to be appalled at the prospect of laying aside not only the way I loved, but also who I loved. To do what I assumed God would have me to do meant leaving the woman whose voice and body and mind had been mine to hold and keep. To those who had heterosexual eyes, our love was a strange thing, but to us it was normal. I loved her and she loved me. But God loved me more. So much that he wouldn't let me, he wouldn't have me going about the rest of my life convinced that a creature's love was better than a king's. Homosexuality might have been my loudest sin, but it was not my only one. By calling me to my himself, he was after my whole heart. His intention was to turn it toward him and transform it as only he could, enabling me to be holy And how I express not just my sexuality, but everything else. Do you know what I'm talking about? To be a billboard of grace to a world that desperately needs grace. You have to lead with your brokenness. You have to lead with your running. You have to share your story of hardness of heart. And how God, not you, but how God softened you. Because he loved you and he was chasing you long before you ever even realized you were running. Who's the centerpiece of your story? You and your decisions or God and his decisions? Who's who's in the spotlight of your testimony? Your running or Jesus is running. Name after name, story after story for every name I mentioned, there could be a million more and there are. And you're in the same boat, friends, you and I. We are in need of this grace. And if you've tasted it before, you are a billboard of this grace. We lead with weakness before a world that needs to see it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.
You don't just give us second chances and say, don't blow it this time. Get it right. You make us new people. From Jackie Hill Perry to George Wallace to C.S. Lewis to me to my friends in the room tonight. You have made us new men and new women. And you have sent us out to live our lives indestructible, even from our own selves and our own foolishness, but kept safe by your love. I pray that you would work this into our hearts, work this into our lives, and do it so that you might be seen as beautiful to this world, to this campus, to this city, that you might be seen as a lover of sinners, as a savior for the lost. We ask this in your name. Amen.